Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. And, you know, it's funny. It seems like we always have to adjust the uh, the picture, for those of you watching via Rumble, at the beginning of the program. I've just figured out why. It's because of the chair, Richie. See, we've got this pneumatic office chair, and sometimes it's low and sometimes it's high, and I can't make it go either. So <laughs> I don't know what happens in between. But that's why we need people like you to uh, help us with your donations. Because I tell you what, having a, uh, having a, a working chair for the hosts of our programs is probably a, uh, some people would consider that a high priority, but it's low on the list around here uh, because of the uh, financial situation. So, hey, you know, when you're saying a prayer for us, don't forget to uh, head on to VMPR and, and uh, give us a couple of shekels too. That would be awesome. All right. Um, we're going to be talking today about the Latin Vulgate and the uh, English translation of the Latin Vulgate that uh, is known as the Dewey Reims version of the Bible, and how those things relate to the traditional Latin Mass. That's really going to be the bulk of our of our um, time together today. We're also going to talk about the Transfiguration, which was uh, celebrated earlier this week in the extraordinary form of the Mass, or I guess that term is, I'm get, go back to calling it just the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, and But as always, we're going to start with the Gospel uh, for the traditional Latin Mass that uh, began this week, the Gospel for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, which is taken from Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. At that time, Jesus, going out of the coasts of Tyre, came by Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. And they bring to him one deaf and dumb, and they besought him that he would lay hand upon him, and taking him from the multitude apart, he put his fingers into his ears, and spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he groaned and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be thou opened. And immediately his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke right. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal did they publish it. And so much the more did they wonder, saying, He hath done all things well. He hath made both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. I want to start by saying this is an historical account of a real physical healing. <clears throat> but it has a spiritual meaning. It refers to those who are deaf to the voice of God and to those who are dumb when it comes to prayer or the praise of God or defending the rights of the church or, or the good name of their neighbor or confessing their sins. Scripture says Christ took the deaf and dumb man aside. Why? Because Jesus did not seek the praise of men. And at the same time, he was not ready to provoke the hatred of his enemies which is a good example for us today, especially on social media. Uh, the gospel says that Jesus put his fingers into the ears of the deaf and dumb man and spitting touched his tongue. And that he showed by these signs that it was he who freed this man from bodily evils, that, it was, uh, that this healing power was not the uh, consequence of some uh, remedies that were given to him secretly, that it happened right there in the open, and that Jesus was the source, proceeded directly from our Lord himself. It says, Jesus looked up to heaven and groaned. And here our Lord teaches us the practice uh, to practice the virtue of compassion for the suffering of others. 
and to acknowledge that every good gift comes to us from above. Then Christ charged the man and the people who witnessed uh, his miraculous healing not to tell anyone. And again, he's teaching by example that we should not seek after praise for our good deeds. And yet the scripture says the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal did they publish it. And by this, I think we should uh, also learn that we should make known the works of God uh, to his glory. Because even now, even today, in, in fact, every day, he's working so many wonders right before our eyes, uh, including but not limited to the sun coming up this morning. Uh, and, and, and he does these things so that we uh, can praise his compassion and his omnipotence. It's also significant that the uh, gen, uh, the deaf and dumb man was a Gentile. We see that when he talks about uh, where, where he's located, right? Sidon by the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the uh, coast of Decapolis, the Ten Cities. Okay, so this is, this is Gentile territory. And so this deaf and dumb man presumably was a Gentile. And so the fathers and doctors of the church tell us that uh, by healing this, this uh, deaf and dumb Gentile man, our Lord wished to show that the Gentiles also had a share in the kingdom of God, if they would believe and have faith in him. Uh, right? even, even though the uh, people of Israel had the first claim, you know, by reason of their election as the chosen people of God, Jesus came for everybody. And uh, also we see here, um, apologetically speaking, the um, meaning of ceremonies, right? In, in healing the deaf and dumb man, our Lord made use of several signs and ceremonies to enable a man to understand what was the matter with him and, of course, to whom he owed his cure, right? He's touching his ears and the spitting and the touching his tongue and so forth. And so, likewise, the Church, in her liturgy, in the Holy Mass, uh, in administering the, the Holy Sacraments, follows that same example of our Divine Lord and makes use of outward and visible signs, uh, in order to raise our hearts and minds to the supernatural, right, to recognize the source of grace and to make uh, sensible, right, to give us a visible sign of the invisible effects of grace that come to us through the sacraments. And finally, the deaf and dumb man is a type. He's a type of the unbaptized, uh, the person who is without sanctifying grace and therefore is deaf to the supernatural truths of religion and unable you know, he's dumb because he cannot confess uh, his faith and his own sinfulness. And by baptism, of course, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity are implanted in the soul, and our spiritual ears are opened to the divine truth, our tongue is loosened to confess the faith, and to thank our Redeemer for his benefits. And in the rite of baptism, the Church imitates the action of our Lord, the priest touching um, the child's ears and nose, uh, with the and with the spittle, and he pronounces the word "ephata," be opened. Right, this is a direct reference to to the deaf and dumb man being a type of uh, the unbaptized. And and a final word for me: I, hearing and speech are gifts of God. Uh, speech, especially a gift of of you know to human beings because of our rational soul, and therefore these gifts need to be used rightly. You know, there's an old saying that since we have two ears but only one tongue, we should listen twice as much as we speak, and that is no nonsense. 
Now, I mentioned also that last Thursday was the celebration of the Transfiguration, uh, which is in in, um, all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And I will read here from the uh, Schuster's Bible history, his his, uh, harmony of the three accounts. A short time before his passion, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and went up to a high mountain to pray. And whilst he prayed, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And behold, Moses and Elias appeared, uh, discoursing with him concerning his passion and death, which he was soon to suffer for the redemption of the world. Transported with joy at the sight, Peter exclaimed, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. As he was yet speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice of the Eternal Father was heard, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The disciples fell prostrate on the ground, terrified by the heavenly voice. Then Jesus came to them and touched them, saying, Arise, and be not afraid. When they arose, they saw no one but Jesus alone. As they went down from the mountain, Jesus said to the three disciples, Tell the vision to no one till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. So the harmony of the three synoptic gospels on the transfiguration. So what do we see here? There's a lot packed into this uh, account. First, we have um, the proving of the divinity of Christ. Um, We have the testimony of the Heavenly Father, declaring for the second time, like he did at the baptism, that Jesus is his beloved Son. Uh, We have the teaching of the apostles, who were eyewitnesses, to this, which is, you know, uh, you can see in Second um, Peter, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, but having been made eyewitness of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, this voice coming down to him from excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I have pleased myself. Hear ye him. And here's the kicker. And this voice we heard brought from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. All right, so he's, he's referring directly to the transfiguration. The holy mount, by the way, being Mount Tabor. And then, of course, we have our, our Lord's own prophecy of his resurrection, because he forbids the apostles to tell what they've seen, quote, until after um, the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Also, we got the appearance of Moses and Elias, or Elijah, if you prefer, which shows that Jesus was the Messiah, or Messiah, to whom the law and the prophets uh, pointed. They paid homage to him as their Lord, uh, who had fulfilled the law and the prophets, and through his impending death would release you know, the holy souls that were uh, um, detained in the Limbus Patrum, in the Limbo of the Fathers, uh, until the opening of uh, heaven. And then we have, uh, you know, the voice of the Father confirming all this. There's also a, a relationship between Mount Tabor and Calvary, because this glimpse of glory was meant to, to give or to make such an impression on the apostles that they wouldn't lose faith when they saw our Lord in his passion going to Mount Calvary to redeem the world. Okay, uh, coming up, going to be talking about the Dewey Reims, the Latin Vulgate, how it relates to the traditional Latin Mass and... Uh, Traditiones Custodes after these brief messages when we come back with lots more No Nonsense Catholic.
Hey, I'm back. Uh, <laughs> only because of the quick thinking of our engineer, Richard, I was lost in thought. Um, and But great to be back with you here on No Nonsense Catholic. You know, before we went to the break, I mentioned uh, certain Bible translations in their relation to the Holy Mass. And if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, no doubt you are already painfully aware that uh, the Douay Reims Bible is my favorite English translation. Uh, and I just wanted to, to, to stop and say actually a word about the publisher that put out the Douay, my first copy I ever got of the Douay Reims, uh, and that's Tan Books. Now, now Tan um, was acquired by St. Benedict Press back in 2008, um, but they're trying to con- you know, carry on the tradition. Their motto is, the publishers you can trust with your faith. And I like that because um, I think a generation of Catholics did just that. Uh, Tan Books, T-A-N, Tan Books, was founded by Thomas A. Nelson, hence T-A-N, Tan, back in 1967. And that's just, uh, you know, a couple of years after the close of Vatican II. But he could already see how the traditional teaching um, of the church was being abandoned for this, you know, new theology, this new paradigm, and within another couple of years, a, a whole new mass. And for a good many years, decades probably, Tan was pretty much the only publisher, at least in English, that was committed to the preservation and the promotion of the spiritual and theological and, and liturgical traditions of Holy Mother Church, and, and pretty much the only place you could go to purchase a Douay Reims Bible. Now, that, that Tan um, edition of the Dewey was the only one that I know of that was still being printed, and it was only available in paperback. <laughs> I, me and Tim Stables both ran through a couple of three copies apiece, you know, uh, those old paperbacks. Um, and sometimes I mean, Catholic Treasures at, at some point also published um, a facsimile of the Douay Reims Bible in the, with the extensive commentary um, from the Fathers and Doctors and Saints by Father George Leo Haydock, uh, hence the Haydock version of the Bible. But it's in, it's in magazine format, you know, it's like a, uh, a big, and it's actually, their paperback version is, was published in three volumes. You had an Old Testament, and then the New Testament, and then a Bible dictionary. That had all been in, in one volume, record, but it was, you know, uh, huge. So they, they broke it into three. Um, but th- that tan version was pretty much the only thing going as far as a, uh, just a regular Bible. And, you know, thanks be to God today, there's, there's various editions uh, of the Douay Reims, including, you know, hardbound editions and editions with nice leather covers. In fact, I saw at the Catholic bookstore just the other day uh, a pocket-sized Douay Reims, which was just the Psalms and the New Testament, uh, and also nicely bound in leather and in the Douay Reims translation. So if anybody's out there, wondering what to get me for Christmas, okay, that, that would be a good choice, just saying. Anyway, over the years, uh, Tan offered more than a thousand titles on, on, well, countless titles, they have more than a thousand today, um, on traditional devotions and traditional theology and the traditional liturgy, church history, lives of the saints, and so on. And uh, it's still a family-owned business and still carries on the mission of its original owners. According to the website, our uncompromising mission is to help people become saints. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church has ceaselessly provided God's children with the tools and resources necessary to become saints. And so they offer this guarantee. 
quote, if you ever purchase a tan book that does not help you grow in sanctity, please return it for a full refund. The salvation of our customers is our number one priority, unquote. That's a beautiful sentiment. Now, this is not a paid endorsement, okay? And this just, program's not going to be a, uh, you know, one long infomercial for tan books. I just wanted to take a moment to, to recognize just how influential this one publisher has been on so many traditional Catholics, and me personally. You know, prior to the internet, tan books was literally the only source uh, for a lot of these um, books on the traditional Catholic faith. And for that, I personally owe Mr. Thomas Nelson a debt of gratitude. And especially about how scrupulous Thomas Nelson was um, about making sure that all the scripture references in the books he published were from the Douay Reims Bible. Now, Tan today, they offer, you know, Bibles in different translations and, and, and other things that are not published exclusively by Tan, which was never the case when, when uh, Thomas Nelson ran things. But um, he was very devoted to the Douay Reims. In fact, in the year of our Lord 2001, Thomas Nelson wrote a book of his own. Okay, so not, not a reprint from, uh, you know, before Vatican II, but a, a book of his own, a little 100-page book called Which Bible Should You Read? And it is a provocative work, and, and in his own words, an unabashed apologia for the Douay Reims Bible. And I will be quoting liberally from that book as we go forward. Now, before we do, I just want to say that in my work as a diocesan catechist and as um, an author and a speaker, I regularly make use of the New American Bible translation. And the reason is that the New American Bible is the official English translation for use in the liturgy in the United States. And it is therefore the translation that is uh, endorsed by the U.S. bishops, and it is the one that most Catholic Americans are familiar with because that's the version that is used at Holy Mass. Now, um, my own book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, actually takes its scripture references primarily from the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. But this was not um, my choice. That was actually, uh, it's the editorial policy of my publisher, Ignatius Press, because they also publish the the RSV, so that's the that's the Bible that they use and the one they promote. Now, okay, so in in both cases, you know whether whether I'm I'm teaching for the diocese and using the New American Bible, or I'm speaking to um, you know rank and file Catholics uh, about the Bible and want them to be able to understand what I'm talking about, or I'm publishing a book through Ignatius. Um, it's it's the price of doing business, okay, and for me. The, 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 my uh, Bible translation of choice is the Douay Reims translation. Now, and this is ground that I've covered before, so why go over it again? Why now? And, well, the reason is I was prompted by the, a provision in, under Article 3 of Traditionis Custodes. All right, TC Article 3, Paragraph 3, uh, wherein Pope Francis commands that, quote, in these celebrations, talking about the traditional Latin Mass, in these celebrations, the readings are to be proclaimed in the vernacular language, using translations of the sacred scripture approved for liturgical use by the respective Episcopal conferences, unquote. <clears throat> now, it remains to be seen if uh, that 
it has to be interpreted. I mean, if he really means that the the Latin readings need to be replaced by the vernacular when when the priest is celebrating the mass, that he that he is to proclaim those readings from the altar, or if the Pope just wants the the readings to be read in the vernacular uh, from the pulpit not before the homily, which is the practice of uh, um, you know a, a good many priests and, and parish churches and whatnot, they will read the <clears throat> pardon me the read the readings in English before the homily, <clears throat> but it it appears here. I mean, it, it, the document, it, it certainly makes it look like uh, the former, that he wants um, the priest to depart from the Latin text when it comes time for the epistle and the gospel and read from the New American Bible instead. And I say that, right, because there are many um, approved English translations in the Catholic Church, in English translations of the Bible. The Vatican uses the new Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition for the official translations of English translations of uh, church documents. So papal encyclicals and the Catechism of the Catholic Church, all that stuff, anything that's coming out of Rome in English translation is going to be the NRSVCE. Um, A variety of English translations are used by uh, local churches in various dioceses around the the Anglophone, the English-speaking world, including the Revised Standard Version of the Catholic Bible and the Jerusalem Bible, the NRSVCE, uh, the, the Grail Psalter, which was a, a translation of the Psalms from the 1970s, um, and the 1970 translation of the New American Bible are the official translations currently for the Liturgy of the Hours. And the uh, contemporary English version, which is not a Catholic version at all, um, but an ecumenical translation by the American Bible Society in, in real basic English uh, is approved for the so-called children's liturgy. And I don't know how many dioceses still uh, offer a children's liturgy, but they allow them to use that, you know, kind of simple Simon Bible translation. And then over the years, of course, the bishops here in the United States uh, have given their imprimatur to a, a whole plethora of English translations um, that are approved for private use and for study and, and uh, so forth. However, the only English translation of the Scripture that is approved for proclamation at Holy Mass in the dioceses of the United States of America is the New American Bible. Now, it will not take long to discover why this translation is not suited to the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. You know, Whenever you read it, you know, if, if, you, if you from the altar or the pulpit. Now, the bishops of the United States, regarding traditionis custodes, they, they kind of fall into three broad categories regarding their, their implementation of this new mode of proprio. Uh, I would suggest to you that um, those bishops who have historically resisted the traditional mass, regardless of Samorum Pontificum, um, you know, they have largely simply forbidden the traditional mass. Uh, those who have been the most sympathetic are simply keeping things the way they are. Uh, some of them even invoking canon law to say that they are, um, you know, the official arbiters of the liturgy in their, their respective dioceses, and so they will be the ones who decide how the liturgy is celebrated there. And uh, a good many of them have taken the, the wait-and-see approach. Um, you know, so they're not changing anything. Uh, but after how long... Nobody knows, right? They're waiting to see, I guess, which way the wind blows 
in regarding to you know in regard to the implementation of the document. So uh, at the present time, you know, I I only am aware of a couple of instances here in the U.S. where the bishop is actually trying to follow all the prescriptions of this document, which include an immediate halt to the traditional Latin Mass celebrated at parish churches and this introduction of the vernacular readings. Now, the issue here, when we're talking about um, using a, a modern translation of the Bible in the traditional Latin Mass, is the fact that the Latin Vulgate, the, the Latin translation done by St. Jerome back in the 4th century, has shaped significantly the, the faith and devotion and theology of the church, of, of her saints, of the doctors and confessors, of the fathers of the church, from every corner of the world for a thousand years, you know? And, and so we have to ask ourselves this question, which Bible is the one that should be used? Which one should we read? We're going to discuss that in some detail when we come back. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. And we'll return after these messages. All right. Wearing my headphones this time around and welcome you back to round uh, three here on No Nonsense Catholic. Great to have you along with us talking about um, the use of the Bible uh, in the church, life of the church, and importance of translations. Uh, and I want to talk about the importance of the Latin Vulgate Bible, uh, because I've, you know, I'm, I'm promoting the Dewey Reims translation, the English translation, and it is a faithful, I would say scrupulously faithful, uh, translation into English of the Latin Vulgate Bible. Um, that is the Bible translation prepared by St. Jerome back in the fourth century. Uh, where he translated the scripture into Latin from the original languages. Now, uh, it, it should be noted that um, there were already a, a, a number of Latin translations, uh, especially for the lectionary, for those readings that are used at Mass. Because uh, Mass in Latin uh, goes back to the very early days. In fact, um, according to Pope Innocent III, the Roman canon is the most venerable of all of the liturgical prayers, and that it was, um, that prayer was used by St. Peter himself and in Latin. And, uh, and of course, there, there are modern scholars who, who would uh, dispute that, but it is certainly, you know, the oldest of the, of the uh, um, Latin prayers. Even uh, uh, Pope Francis points out that the Roman canon is kind of that, that central uh, feature of the traditional Latin Mass. And I would suggest to you also that um, uh, that it was St. Peter who introduced Latin into the liturgy. And the reason being, um, at least for some of the evidence uh, being, the fact that John Mark um, accompanied him when he went to Rome, according to uh, the Fathers of the Church, that he went as his secretary, or more uh, um, specifically, his translator. Mark, of course, Marcus is a Roman name, so it's it's, you know, conceivable that he was there to help him with his Latin. In fact, there are uh, scholars and, and uh, other Catholics, and I would include myself in that other category, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no scholar, but uh, who consider it um, possible, even probable, 
that the gospel of Mark, which is primarily the preaching of St. Peter, um, as written down by uh, Mark the Evangelist, was in fact originally in Latin, and that it was then translated into Greek when it was disseminated throughout the Near East. And so that, that Markan translation and, these, you know, and, and other, we have Latin translations too, the Old Itala and, and others. But the problem is, of course, you have all these different Latin translations of the scriptures and they're not going to be uniform. So Pope uh, St. Damasus, um, I believe, was the one who commissioned St. Jerome to translate it into Latin, um, obviously the, the you know, largest rite of the church. Jerome was a great saint. He was a linguist. He's one of the four great Latin doctors of the church. And he is the man raised up by God to make this official uh, translation of the Holy Bible into the common Latin of his day. And, and it's, it's important to know that St. Jerome um, was an expert in Latin. I mean, he was a Latin scholar, but his native language was Greek. And that he also studied Hebrew and, and Aramaic from the time he was uh, 26 years old. In fact, there was a time that he lived in Bethlehem and was close enough to the rabbinical school at Caesarea Philippi that uh, he could consult with the rabbis in regard to the, the proper meaning of certain Hebrew words. Because, I mean, probably the best translation, the most uniform translation of the Old Testament that would have been available at that time or even now, for that matter, is the Greek Septuagint version, uh, the, the version, uh, the Greek translation that was made under, um, you know, at the library at Alexandria, under the Hellenistic uh, Empire. These, the, you know, the 70 or 72 scholars uh, allegedly, you know, employed to each one of them translate one of the Old Testament books into Greek so that they could be preserved in this, in this new regime. And of course, that is the uh, that is the version of the Old Testament that is quoted in the New Testament. Right? Jesus and the apostles, when they quote the scriptures in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, they are quoting the Septuagint. So the point being is that Jerome, that was his native language. He understood that the way you and I understand English. Not only that, but he was a, a Latin scholar as well, uh, to the point that he's considered one of the four great Latin doctors of the church. Okay. Um, his translation was made uh, from the Septuagint, but it was corrected with Hebrew um, manuscripts and even Greek manuscripts and Aramaic and, and the book of Daniel in Chaldaic, which he learned specifically so that he could check um, you know, the, the Septuagint Greek version versus the original. And so he learned Chaldaic just for that one book of the Bible. The point being is that he had access the manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts especially, of the 2nd and 3rd centuries that are no longer extant. All right? Um, there's an author, Ronald D. Lambert, uh, in a uh, Triumph magazine back in 1968, wrote an article. He said, his, that St. Jerome, his sources being both numerous and ancient, his knowledge of the languages, a living knowledge, because yes, the Koine Greek and, and Latin were both spoken languages at the time. Um, his scholarship consummate, he was a far better judge of the true shade of meaning of a particular word than any modern scholar. 
And as Thomas Nelson pointed out in his booklet, uh, which Bible should you read, not only is he um, a better judge of, of the shades of meaning than modern scholars, but he is a better judge than any modern scholar could hope to be. Not only because of his facility with those languages when they were living languages, but also because of his access to, to manuscripts that are no longer extant. Okay, so God raised up this saintly man who at the behest of the Pope gave to the world and the, the church a faithful rendering of the divine word into Latin, which up until just a couple of hundred years ago was the universal language of all Western Christendom, and which is still today the official language of the Catholic Church. Now, the Latin Vulgate was read and, and honored um, by Western Church for almost, well, for 1,600 years, or from the 4th century to the 20th. Uh, and, and at the Council of Trent, and uh, it was at, let me see, I have it here, it was the fourth session of the Council of Trent on April the 8th, 1546. Um, the, the council decreed, and I quote, Moreover, the same council ordains and declares that the old Latin Vulgate edition, which in use for so many hundred years has been approved by the church, be in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions held as authentic, and that no one may dare or presume under any pretext whatsoever to reject it. Now, that is a powerful statement. Um, and then Pope Pius XII, in 1943, in his uh, encyclical Divino Aflante Spiritu, on the promotion of biblical studies, he said, and I quote, that what this means, um, this Declaration of Trent, is that, quote, interpreted in the sense in which the Church has always understood it, Okay, that's an important clause. I'm going to repeat that. Interpreted in the sense in which the church has always understood it, that Latin Vulgate is free from any error whatsoever in matters of faith and morals, so that, as the church herself testifies and affirms, it may be quoted safely and without fear of error in disputations, lectures, and in preaching. That's, that's not the 16th century anymore. This is the 20th century now. No other Bible, not even, uh, there's a new Vulgate version that was uh, promulgated in 1979, uh, and even that Bible, no other uh, translation of the Bible um, has ever been endorsed by the Church in such a powerful way. Now, the Dewey Reims is important as an English translation because it's the only English Bible that is, in fact, a faithful translation from the Latin Vulgate of St. Jerome. And it is that their absolute fidelity to the Vulgate by the translators that is uh, um, the, the, the great claim of the Douay Reims. It always has been, and nobody on any side of the question denies it. So that the obvious conclusion is that that Douay Reims Bible really is the, the safest, if you will, English translation of the Holy Bible into English. And, and what makes it so superior? Why, why is that important? Well, I think that um, uh, the problem is that uh, the method that's 
employed by modern translators, suffers from um, some basic errors, some fundamental errors. Uh, first, that they bypass Jerome's Latin Vulgate in favor of translating texts from the original languages. And I'll show why that's a problem, you know, in, in, in a minute. But first off is that they don't translate from the, the Vulgate. Secondly, uh, these modern translators employ the meanings for, for words in their translations, which are arguably correct. You know, I wouldn't use the New American Bible or the RSV in my, in my work or my teaching if, if, you know, they couldn't be understood in a way that, you know, was orthodox, obviously. Uh, although I, I do not hesitate to um, correct them when, when they're way off by recourse to the Vulgate. Why, why would I make recourse to the Vulgate? Because uh, it is considered, you know, to be authoritative in public lectures, disputations, sermons, expositions, uh, and, and can't be rejected under any pretense. Okay. Um, so that's number two, is that they use word meanings, which, although correct in, in some sense, are maybe not correct for the particular use that they put to them, or at, at the very least, um, that they contradict the meaning given to them in the translation by St. Jerome. And then number three, and probably the, the worst of all, the most important, um, or the biggest error, is that they um, seem to read these original language versions of the Bible, decide for themselves what it means, and then translate that meaning into English, which means it's not so much a translation as an interpretation. Okay, more on this when we come back with uh, lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. Final round here on this Wednesday. Great to have you along with us. Whenever you might be listening to the program, couldn't do it without you. If it wasn't for you, I'd just be sitting here talking to myself. Okay. And we're talking about the Douay Reims translation of the Latin Vulgate and the importance of translating from the Latin. Now, and why is that important? Why, why, uh, how, how do we decide which, quote-unquote, original text to translate from? Well, first, um, we should recognize that we are not in possession of any original manuscripts of any of the books of the Bible, right? Uh, these things were largely written on papyrus, and it doesn't stand the test of time. We have fragments of very old um, uh, manuscripts, but no originals. Moreover, the text that we do have in Hebrew and in Greek, um, uh, these original languages, don't necessarily completely agree with each other. Uh, and certainly not as well as the texts of the Latin Vulgate of St. Jerome. But the question comes up, why translate from a translation? Why would you translate from Jerome's translation rather than from the original documents? Well, because, number one, we don't have the original documents. And number two, uh, this, this question came up uh, during the Protestant Reformation. Luther made his uh, um, a translation of the Old Testament, not from the Septuagint, not from not from the, the uh, Vulgate, but from the Masoretic text, which was considered to be, you know, kind of the official text uh, uh, amongst a, a 
there was sort of a consensus amongst the Jews of his time. But the, the Masoretic text, which is still being used as, as a Hebrew text for translation, is from around, you know, circa 1000 A.D., right? This, this is a, a translation, uh, a Hebrew version of the Bible, that's from the Middle Ages. You know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer, by the way, uh, that the, the river runs clearer, closer to the source. So generally speaking, the older the better. But the problem is that you have the, uh, the danger of corruption. And that is, in fact, the, when the Douay Reims translation was made into English. The translators under uh, Father Gregory Martin there in, in um, Douay um, published that New Testament, or I guess they were in Reims, <clears throat> and they gave 10 reasons for why they translated from the Vulgate. Presumably they started with the, the Council of Trent. But it, it says here, quote, it's not only better than all other Latin translations, right, the Vulgate, but then the Greek text itself in those places where they disagree. It says further on, the, uh, both the Hebrew and Greek editions are foully corrupted since the Latin was truly translated out of them whilst they were more pure, right, closer to the source because Jerome was using manuscripts that no longer exist, because that translation was made from those original languages while they were more pure, and <clears throat> that same Latin has been far better conserved, conserved from corruptions. In other words, our oldest manuscripts of the Latin uh, Vulgate agree fundamentally uh, with the later manuscripts. And we need to remember that, that you know, I mean, of course, there were far more um, copies of the Vulgate made, so you'd think it would be open to more, you know, mistakes or corruptions. But it's also it's easier to detect errors because there are a, a greater standard by which to judge. And we have to remember also that block printing was around in the Middle Ages, but, but printing from movable type, the kind of printing that made uh, it possible to print a whole Bible, um, that, that wasn't around. I mean, movable type wasn't invented until the 1430s, and it wasn't until um, late in the 1440s, right? Johannes Gutenberg, with his famous printing press, the first thing he printed was a calendar, back in 1448, okay? And, and it wasn't until the 1450s that he produced the first Bible, all right, the first uh, printed Bible. Prior to that, all Bibles, all biblical manuscripts were written by hand. Also, it was commonly accepted by the fathers of the church that uh, the Jews purposely uh, fiddled with the texts of the Hebrew Bible uh, to destroy the arguments of the Christians. All right? So, uh, true or not, that was something that was uh, came into it came into the uh, equation. Certainly, um, a concern when you're using a translation done a thousand years after the establishment of the Catholic Church. All right. So, for Thomas Nelson, in, in his uh, book, he said for modern translators to, to go back to uh, transcripts uh, of uh, Hebrew and Greek, right, which are the languages in which these books were originally written, and make translations from transcriptions that are not always reliable and, and are fundamentally different in, in hundreds of ways from Jerome's Vulgate, uh, is to demand, he says, of any sensible Catholic today to reject their work. Uh, because if a Catholic doesn't do that, he's, what he's saying, you know, if, if in other words, if we accept 
uncritically these modern and sometimes, let's face it, modernist translations of the Bible, what we're really rejecting is 1,600 years of Catholic tradition. And 1,600 years of the use of this um, most important of biblical translations, the Latin Vulgate. And, of course, the, the hundreds of years that um, that Vulgate uh, was translated into English in the Douay Reims. You know, I, I, I mentioned before when I'm teaching or speaking sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be using the New American Bible version, you know, uh, in, in my remarks. But we might come to something where it just, you know, the, the, the translation so obscures the, the original meaning that I will go to, I have an interlinear New Testament. So it's got the, the Latin Vulgate in one column, and right next to it, verse by verse, is the English translation in the Douay Reims, so that I can go to the Latin and give them the, the uh, um, you know, very uh, scrupulous translation into English, right? This very literal translation, say, this is what it says, and then draw conclusions uh, from that. Um, you know, there, there's, there's so many questionable Bibles out there, and Bibles are being... Uh, updated all the time. You know, uh, the, the New American Bible, we have the 1970 version and the 1986 version and the 1991 version, and now we have the, the uh, one that was done, uh, what, in, what, 2010, I guess? Um, the revised, or the, the New American Bible revised edition, and then it's been revised even further for the lectionary, all right? And, and so we have parts of, of the, the Bible in the lectionary that, that are not represented in any uh, translation of the actual Bible, which brings us back to the situation that Pope was trying to correct when he had Jerome make the Latin Vulgate in the first place. Okay, um, I, I would say to, again, um, that this translation is for, you know, working purposes, it is the Bible as far as the Church is concerned. And I'll tell you that any Novus Ordo apologist today will tell you that there are two sources of divine revelation. Scripture and tradition. This is, I mean, this is a, a tenet of the Catholic faith. That's, you have to believe that if you're a Catholic. Scripture and tradition form one deposit of the divine revelation. But if we ignore that tradition, and in ignoring that tradition, create a translation of the Bible that is no longer the same as the Bible that we had for, you know, 1900 years, 1600 years, you know, okay. Um, it begs the question of, you know, uh, the reliability of the Catholic faith. I mean, really, I, I, this, that's not my issue, <laughs> but you could, you could make that point that, that, uh, that uh, modern uh, translators and stuff in, in, in the Catholic Church are saying, well, you know, the Church was okay for that first 400 years or so, and then we had this uh, nice version of St. Jerome, but the understanding of that go all through the Middle Ages and everything got all corrupted and so forth. And so uh, we need to go back to the early things and, you know, we sort of, sort of ignore that and, and need to go forward from here. I would suggest to you that is identical to the argument that Martin Luther made in the 1600s. And maybe it's not surprising that uh, the big promoters of this We Need a New Translation came from Germany. Uh, just saying. The point is, um, if the new Bibles are correct in, in the many, many ways, the new translations, in the many ways that they differ from St. Jerome's translation, 
uh, almost countless ways, hundreds of ways, then that would suggest that uh, Jerome's translation was, was tragically flawed. That it was, that it was you know, uh, wildly off the rails in, in you know, many, many instances. But that means that the Latin rite, the, 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 the mass, holy mass of the Roman Catholic Church hasn't had a properly translated Bible, or didn't have a properly translated Bible for 1,600 years. And that is, you know, that's nonsense. That's, that's preposterous because we know that the church is guided by the Holy Ghost and that Scripture is one of the two sources of the Catholic faith and that our understanding of it is tradition and that's the other source. And so on the basis of concluding the Catholic Church must have always had uh, the uh, correct translation, it being God's church and Scripture and tradition being the sources of divine revelation, it follows that we should concede that Jerome's Vulgate translation was, in fact, substantially accurate and is safe to use even today. All right, and I and I suggest to you that that is um, that it is important for the proper celebration of the traditional Mass that it be uh, the Latin Vulgate be retained as the liturgical text, and the Douay Reims retained as the English. Translation. Uh, let me see here. Leo the Thirteenth said, "Sacred Scripture is not like other books. Dictated by the Holy Ghost, it contains things of the deepest importance, which in many instances are most difficult and obscure. To understand and explain such things, there always required the coming of the same Holy Spirit, that is to say, His light and His grace. And these, as the Royal Psalmist so frequently insists." are to be sought by humble prayers and, by, and guarded by holiness of life. And I believe that, uh, that those things apply to St. Jerome, who was a great saint lifted up by God precisely so that the church would have a correct uh, translation of the scripture throughout the many, many centuries from his day to ours. And that's no nonsense. All right. Thank you for being with us here. Thank you for listening to me talk about this. It's something that's close to my heart. And, um, you know, in, in the future here going forward, I think we'll return to this topic. And we'll look at some of those places where the translations deviate uh, so, so widely and take a look at uh, why that translation is more in keeping with the traditional Catholic faith and how embracing these new translations is in some ways uh, facilitates a rejection of the traditional Catholic faith. All right, all that and more in the future, but for right now, thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for your support, especially your prayers, and also for your financial support, too. Uh, you can go to bmpr.org, click donate. Until then, God bless. <laughs>